Amen. He is, he's the king. Praise the king. He's alive and and we are alive because of him. That, that message that our, our king is, is risen, he has conquered death. Uh, that's, that's why we gather every Sunday, even when we're scattered. That's why we're doing this. And, and it, it's perfect, uh, perfect songs because, uh, because this week and these couple weeks in January, uh, we're continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians. We're almost done. <laughs> but uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, which is this chapter is all about the resurrection Jesus resurrection and and our future resurrection this is this this is my my favorite chapter in the Bible I, mean, I know you know some people have their Psalm 23 or whatever but I have my first Corinthians uh, first Corinthians 15 this because this chapter has repeatedly in my life uh, changed my life last week Greg uh, was preaching the beginning of this chapter um, when Paul says, I would remind you of the gospel, this, this gospel of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised. And that, that framing of the gospel as of first importance, uh, that, that blew up my life 15 years ago. Um, and this chapter has continued to blow up my life since then. So, so I'm, a, I'm a little, not going to lie, a little jealous that, uh, that Greg got to preach that one last, last week. Um, uh, you know, just because I couldn't, you know, get out of bed with COVID or whatever, you know, Greg got to preach that message. Um, and then this week, you know, so I'm still recovering from a pretty severe bout of COVID over the holidays. Um, that's that's why I'm sitting. And so uh, Sarah Sarah was like, are you sure you're up for preaching this week? And I'm like, I don't, it's 1 Corinthians 15. I don't care if I have to preach sitting down. So, so here I am preaching 1 Corinthians 15, sitting down. <laughs> Um, and so there, there's just so much to see in this chapter, so many glorious things to unpack. Um, and so we're, we're actually, you know, this, this message sort of spans a big chunk of the chapter, but we're actually going to come back next week to, to zero in closer on verses 20 to 28, because there's a whole message there and a whole framework of the Christian faith that I think needs to be unpacked from those, from those verses. But today, what I want to do in this larger chunk of chapter 15 is I want to pull one thread that runs through this whole chapter. Because uh, there's, there's an extended wordplay that Paul uses through this chapter that's going to kind of form the structure of this message, I guess. And it's Paul's repeated use of the word empty. It's Paul, Paul's repeated use of the word empty empty. And so uh, actually to see where this starts, where this wordplay starts, we have to go back into Greg's message from last week. And so, you know, last week's text, uh, Paul reminds the Corinthians of this gospel of first importance, that Christ has died and risen, that he's alive. And Paul kind of grounds that historical reality that, that, that the risen Christ appeared to people and he appeared to crowds of people and he appeared to Paul. And Paul says this in, in verse 9, here. He says, he says, you know, Jesus appeared last to me. And Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You know, Paul's story of, of, of hating Jesus and hating Christians until the risen Christ knocked him off his horse and was like, actually, you're going to work for me now, Paul. And Paul says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. 
Now that word in vain in the, the ESV translation, I, I, think, I think it actually lets us down a little bit here because I think we, we, we miss the, the play on words because that word literally is, uh, would better be translated from the Greek empty. Uh, it's the word kenos. It means, it means either literally or figuratively empty. And this is the first of four times in this chapter that Paul uses that word. He says, God's grace to me was not empty. God's grace is full, Paul is saying. It's full to overflowing. And Paul's like, if you want any proof of that, look at me. God's grace was full to overflowing enough to even rescue someone like me. And so the the question is, okay, Paul, why is God's grace full? God's grace is full. I think this, the, the whole chapter gives this, this answer. God's grace is full because Jesus' tomb is empty. God's grace is full because Jesus' tomb is empty. That's, that's the wordplay through this whole chapter. Jesus' tomb is, is empty. Like, it actually, this actually happened. Uh, that, that's what Paul was arguing about in last week's text. Like this, this literally physically happened in history. Easter is not just a, you know, a metaphor for new spring life. Uh, East, resurrection doesn't just mean, oh, I get to go to heaven when I die. No, it's, it's the resurrection that Paul is talking about here is that Jesus' cold, dead heart began to beat again in that tomb with new indestructible life. The blood that on Friday had ransomed people for God on Sunday began to flow again through resurrected, glorified veins. This really happened. The gates of hell collapsed. The stone rolled away. The Roman captors fell to the ground in terror, and Jesus walked out of the grave. He's, he is alive today. His tomb is empty. And because Jesus' tomb is empty, God's grace to me, to you, to us, his people, his grace is full. That Easter changes everything. Because now there's new life and there's freedom and there's forgiveness and all of God's promises can come true to us because Jesus is alive. God's grace is now full. And so Paul just points to himself as the, as the chief example of that, as the worst of sinners and says, says, this living Jesus changed my life. His tomb is empty and his grace is full. So now Paul's going to continue now in, in the chapter, and he's going to be, he's addressing in this chapter what is, I think, probably the biggest problem in the Corinthian church. I mean, we've seen, you know, over this last year, we've seen the Corinthian church has a lot of problems, right? You know, there's, you know, they're, they're arrogant, there's divisions, there, you know, it's bickering, there's, there's sexual immorality, there's lack of love, all those kinds of things, um, but this doctrinal issue that Paul gets to in chapter 15 as he cl- starts closing the letter is, I think, the most serious. It's going to find that some people in the church were preaching that there what is, in fact, no future resurrection from the dead. So here's, so here's what Paul says about that, beginning in verse 12. He says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, and, and here you're, if you have a Bible, your Bible might say you're, our preaching is in vain. But here again, it's the word empty. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. We are found even to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, Paul, Paul confronts this head on that some in the church were saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. And it's, it's important to understand here the, the, the right issue that Paul is confronting. The problem in the, church, in the Corinthian church was not that they didn't believe that Jesus rose. Uh, because that was, like to Paul and to them, that was basically an obvious, indisputable historical fact. You know, you know Paul's like early in the chapter, he's like, he appeared to the disciples, he appeared to a crowd, he appeared to me. It's like, we all know Jesus is alive. You Corinthians know Jesus is alive. So the Corinthians are not denying Jesus' resurrection. The issue here is that some Corinthians are saying, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but you and I won't. There, there is no future resurrection from the dead at the end of history. And that's the false gospel that Paul is taking issue with in this chapter. And his, his first argument here is that if there is no great future resurrection of the dead, then, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And the reason is because those are one and the same thing. For Paul, Jesus' resurrection on Easter and our own future resurrection are inseparable. Easter, as, as we've seen before, as we saw in our Advent series just a couple weeks ago, Easter wasn't just a one-off event. Easter was the first domino. Easter was the launch of the new creation. It was the beginning of the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the first one. And so Paul's like, you, you can't have one without the other. If Jesus, if there's no resurrection, if the end of the story is not resurrection, then Jesus wasn't raised and the tomb isn't empty. And so our faith and our preaching is empty. Now, I, I think it's, it's really important here that, that, we, that, that we get this right and we hear what, what this chapter is arguing. Uh, there's a reason we're going to be lingering here for a couple of weeks. Because I, I think that we have a tendency in sort of modern evangelicalism to fall into a similar error as the Corinthians. And even if we don't frame it quite the same way, the Corinthians said, oh, there's no resurrection from the dead. What we do is we just kind of forget that that's the actual end of the story. And in its place, we have a less than gospel that says that the end goal of the Christian hope is... I go to heaven when I die. This is, this is a drum I've been beating for a while. This is, we, were, we saw this again in the Advent series a few weeks ago. 
Because it's true. If you're in Christ, you've trusted in Jesus. When you die, you, you are with him. There are a couple places in the Bible that make that clear. But that is not what resurrection is. Resurrection is not, I float off to heaven. And the gospel is not just believe in Jesus and go to heaven when I die. The gospel, the full gospel of first importance that, that, that Paul wants us to get in this chapter is believe in Jesus and you will be raised from the dead just like him when he comes again. That's the full message of the gospel. The end of the story is physical bodily resurrection. Jesus' own resurrection on Easter is just the end of the story coming early, a preview of coming attractions. We're, we're going to see that next week as we dig into those verses 20 to 28. And so, so Paul says, if, if that's not the end of the story, then our preaching is empty and our faith is empty. And so, so I'm going to kind of ask question of the text. This is sort of, sort of what I'm doing is I'm reading the text and asking Paul questions like, okay, Paul, if our preaching is empty, why? Why is our preaching empty if Jesus' tomb isn't? And his answer is, well, because it's all a lie then. Everything we've been saying is a lie if Jesus' tomb isn't empty. See, verse 15, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if it's true that there's no resurrection from the dead. If that's not the end of the story, then the end of the story didn't break in on Easter and Jesus is still in the tomb and it's all a lie. See, we just spent our, our Advent series talking about hope, the, the hope of his return, the, the hope of resurrection and restoration. And if Jesus is still in the tomb, that was all a lie. Everything we set up here is false hope. So, you know, take down the Christmas decorations. Actually, we're taking down our Christmas decorations anyway. But take them down, put them away, because it doesn't matter. Because he's dead. See, the only reason, the only reason we care about that baby in the manger is because he's not in the tomb. If he is, then all we've got is just some twinkle lights in December and maybe some chocolate bunnies at Easter. And that's it. And so all of our preaching is empty. It's an empty lie if Jesus' tomb is not empty. And so Paul says our preaching is empty and our faith is empty. So, so Paul, why is our faith empty if the tomb isn't? And here's what he says in verse 17. He says, if Christ had not been, has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. See, if, if Jesus is still in the tomb, he failed. He failed. His sacrifice on the cross to pay for our sins and release us from the curse of death was unsuccessful. 
and what he declared on the cross. When he's on the cross, he says, it is finished. You know, sins atoned for, mission accomplished. Well, that would be false too, because it isn't finished, he's finished. And so the ground, the very ground of our faith in the atoning work of Jesus and his victorious resurrection, it, it would be false. The ground of our faith would be false. And the goal of our faith would just be wishful thinking. Because if Jesus didn't conquer death, then neither will we. And so every casket is permanent. And every goodbye is forever. And there will be no tears wiped away in the end. Just weeping and then death and then nothing. And so, if the tomb is not empty, our faith is. And we're just wasting our time. And in verse 19, he, Paul concludes, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, he says, if, if what we're doing as the church, as faith, as religious people, as Christians, is just this life, he says, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's an interesting statement because um, it reminds me of a, a story I heard once. I, I, I think this was a, a story, an illustration from a John Piper sermon, but I, I can't remember for sure. So uh, Piper, I think, he, he, told, he told about a news story. There was an article in the news um, that interviewed a man who had become a, who had left behind, I think, like a successful career and everything and had become a monk and had dedicated his life to solitude and prayer. It was a, a really interesting story just in and of itself about this guy who became a monk. Uh, and at one point, the interviewer asked him uh, something like this. The interviewer asked him, he says, you, you've dedicated your, your whole life to God. What if it turns out in the end that you die and there is no God? Like, how, how would you feel about that? Of course, I, mean, I guess you wouldn't feel anything, you're dead. But like, how would you feel about that if it turns out that the, your whole life dedicated to God ended up not being true? And the man gave an interesting answer. He said, he said, I don't think my life would have been wasted because, in his words, a life of faithfulness and love and prayer is still worth it, even if there's no God at the end. Which is... Uh, an interesting answer. I think I, I, I understand what he's saying. I understand what he's saying. Makes sense in one way. But I think the Apostle Paul would actually disagree. Because Paul says, Paul says, if there's no resurrection at the end, if it's just death and then we're dead, then it's, it's not worth it. And he says, and in fact, not only is it not worth it, but of all, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so he says, a life of devotion to God, if there's nothing at the end, not only is not worth it, it's pathetic. Like we're pitiful. See, Paul doesn't seem to think that the Christian life is worth it if there's no resurrection at the end. That, that, and, and that's interesting. That, that, I think, scrambles our categories a little bit. And, and I think the reason why, the reason why Paul says this is because Paul and Jesus 
have a fundamentally different conception of the Christian life than that monk did, and maybe a different conception than we do. So I think we, we tend to think of following Jesus as something that makes our life better. Right? You know, come, this is sort of the, the pitch. Come to church, get some peace and joy and meaning and community and good friends for your kids. And it's a, it's a good thing. Following Jesus is, is what makes your life you know, complete and whole. It's what we were made for. And, and it's, it's tricky because all that's true, of course. Following Jesus is what we were made for. There is, there is fulfillment and joy here. But that's not really how Jesus described following him. Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. For whoever would save his life, hold on to it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so if the Christian life isn't just about having some Jesus to make my life complete, but instead is about laying my life down and joining Jesus on the Calvary road of sacrifice. Well, that only makes sense if there's an empty tomb on the other side of the cross. Otherwise, it is a waste. Otherwise, it is absurd. It is pitiful. You know, sacrifice your whole, your whole life, give and, and deny yourself and follow Jesus and risk and love and all of those things and then die having missed out on everything you could have, you, you could have enjoyed. It is a waste. And so if there's no empty tomb on the other side of the cross, don't deny yourself. You know, you've got one life. Live it up. You see, I, I think if, if you want to get the most out of this one life, following Jesus is not the answer. Is that, is that, a, is that a risky thing to say? I don't know. That, that feels like I'm, I'm walking the edge there. If you want to get the most out of this life, this one, if you got one life and you want to live it to the full, then live, live for yourself and squeeze everything you can out of this, this short run that you've got. Collect all the toys, have all the experiences, go out with no regrets. And you will, in the words of Jesus, save your life, get it all for yourself, and then lose it in the end. There's no empty tomb. Everyone loses it in the end, too, so you might as well grab it while you can. But if Jesus really is alive, if he really has been raised, and one day I will be too, if one day I will be raised either to everlasting life and glory with him or everlasting shame and torment away from him forever, if my future is resurrection then that changes the equation. And in that case, the only equation that makes sense is a life lived full out for Jesus. Whatever the cost, whatever the cross, whatever the sacrifice, it's worth it in the end if there's an empty tomb on the other side of the cross, if Jesus has been raised. 
And this is the point that, that Paul makes later. After verses 20 to 28, he picks up this, this thread again. And he says this in verse 30. He says in verse 30, he says, and he, he uses himself as an example. He says, if the dead are not raised, he says, like, what am I doing? Why are we in danger every hour? You know, Paul, Paul suffered and suffered for the sake of the gospel. He, he lost it all. He gave up everything. He gave up prominence and prestige and power and his reputation and everything for a life of suffering on the road. He said, and, and so he says, he's like, guys, I, I die every day. He says, I, I protest by my pride in you, that in, in which I have in Christ Jesus. He's like, he's like, I'm doing this work. I die every day. And so he says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? I, gotta, I guess he got like, you know, attacked at some point. He says this, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. Tomorrow we die. Paul arrives at the same conclusion. If there is no resurrection, then save your life because everyone loses, so you might as well get what you can. And so he warns them, verse 33, he, he, he warns them, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. I think what he means, he's quoting a kind of an aphorism of the day saying, stay away from this teaching. This, this will destroy your faith and destroy your, your ministry. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Don't go on sinning. So he says, stay away from this false teaching that there's no resurrection. Everything hinges on this. And I think what you can see here by Paul's own example, where he says, if the dead aren't raised, then we are to be pitied. He says, if the dead are not raised, what am I doing? Laying my life down. I think the the conclusion that we can draw is that our future resurrection is what propels radical mission. Like how, what is going to propel and sustain radical mission and radical service and following Jesus? What is going to send people to the end, away from friends and family to the ends of the earth, to the unreached who haven't heard about Jesus? What's going what's gonna to propel us to, to, to give generously to the cause of God when it would sure be nice to kind of hoard it instead? Like what's, what's going to, going to, motivate us even to the the smaller things like serving God's people and evangelizing and talking to your coworker about Jesus when it would all be so much easier if we didn't right if Sunday was just you know Sunday was just another day of rest go hang out with the family and you don't have to make any waves at work you don't have to do anything let alone cross the ocean and give your life so what sustains and propels and motivates any of that? And the answer is resurrection does. Resurrection propels all of that. It's the belief in what Jesus said, that whoever saves his life will lose it. But if you lose your life and lay it down and sacrifice and give, then you do find it in the end. In the end, at the last day, you find it was worth it. You know, yesterday, yesterday, Saturday, was the 65th anniversary of 
that missionaries, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, Nate Saint, and Roger Udarian, um, being killed in Ecuador by the Warani tribe that they were trying to bring the gospel to. It's, this is a story you, you might have heard, you might have been, might be familiar with. Um, if not, if, if those names don't ring any bells, um, go, go watch the movie End of the Spear or watch the documentary uh, Beyond the Gates of Splendor. Uh, because it's a really compelling story, but these these young men, 65 years ago, uh, going to an unreached tribe in in Ecuador, uh, and and ultimately paying for that mission with their lives. And you know, Jim Elliot uh, has the, the the famous the famous quote that he he wrote in in his journals in sort of in preparation for this life of mission. And he, this, his famous quote, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, Jim Elliot understood 1 Corinthians 15. He understood what Jesus was saying, that sacrifice and following Jesus, picking up your cross, is actually, in the end, worth it. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, because you can't keep any of this. Either... Either the tomb is occupied and everyone loses everything in the end, so you can't keep it, or the tomb is empty and only what's done for Christ matters in the end. Either way, you can't keep it, you can't take it with you. And so to give up what you cannot keep, to gain what you cannot lose, is a good trade indeed. Resurrection propels radical mission. So for, for us, what, what does that mean for us? Well, it, it, it means, first of all, do you believe that the tomb is empty? Like, ha- have you really reckoned with, that his- with the historical reality, the account that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive? Because if you, if you decide, nah, it's a fairy tale, I'm not buying it, then you know, just turn-, turn this off now. Go do something else. Um, but if Jesus really is alive, then that changes everything. And nothing else really matters apart from this. And so have you put your faith in this savior, this living reigning king who says, I'm coming back one day. Are you putting your trust in him? Is he your savior? And even wherever you are now on your, on your couch with your, with your coffee, (laughs) he can be your savior. And you can say, Jesus, I, I believe that you died for me. I believe that you are alive, and I, I, I want you as my Savior. And you will find that the risen Christ will begin to usher you into a new life that, that you could not have imagined. It will be hard. It will be sacrifice. It will be taking up your cross. But there is, in fact, an empty tomb on the other side of the cross, and it is worth it in the end. The second thing I think that we can take from this is the cause of mission and the mission of the church and your role in it is worth it. 
is worth it. You know, sign up for that spiritual gifts workshop uh, because the risen Jesus wants to use you. What better way could there to be, be to, to, to spend your life being used by God? Whether, whether it's here in the church, whether it's serving on a team, or whether it's out in the world, wherever God has planted you, wherever God has, however God has wired you, he wants to use you. And so give yourself to that, to whatever he's calling you to. It's worth it in the end. And maybe the, the, the other thing, the other observation that I, I take from this, and maybe, maybe this is directed a little bit more to the young people, because, you know, all right, young people, you've probably heard of the expression YOLO, all right, YOLO, you only live once. Sort of, uh, for those of you who don't, who don't know that, who are not internet people like, like me, uh, YOLO is, is, is sort of, it's, it's what you say when you're kind of going to do something wild and crazy just for the fun of it. You know, I'm going to go, going to go, you know, do this crazy adventure. YOLO, only live once. It basically, it means, you know, grab all the life you can because you only go around once. So do all the fun, have, you know, have all the experiences, grab it all. You only live once. YOLO is a lie. You don't only live once. You live twice. You could say, YOLT doesn't quite have the same ring to it. You only live twice. <laughs> so don't live like you only live once. Live like you live twice. Or, you know, the, the, the country song, you know, the live like you're dying, go, you know, s- skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, that, that kind of thing. Um, you know, sure, go, go skydiving, go Rocky Mountain climbing. I like, I like Rocky Mountain climbing, what, whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't live like you're dying. Live like you're going to be resurrected. Live like eternity is at stake for those around you. Live like we've got a mission and a gospel that's worth everything. Live like, live like you're going to be resurrected. And so... Step out into whatever God is calling you to. Be bold, speak at work, pray, give, serve, go, whatever it is. Live like you're going to be resurrected because you will be. The tomb is empty. Now, real quick, I want to rewind here because I, I, I feel like I can't go past verse 29 without, no, sorry, Eric, not, you don't need to go to that one. Um, no, I, I can't go past verse 29 with kind of, without just at least explaining what's going on here. Because verse 29 is a really weird verse. Uh, this is Paul, Paul making this argument of, again, he's saying the dead are raised. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. In verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Which is a good question, Paul. What does that mean? <laughs> if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And, you know, you can read the commentaries, and there's 10 answers. 10 commentaries give you 10 answers. We're really not sure what Paul is talking about here. Uh, probably, maybe, I th- what he's probably referring to <coughs> is a practice at the time in which people were baptized on behalf of their dead relatives in the hopes that it would, like, count for them, which is sort of similar to the Mormon practice, if you're familiar with that. So if that's what Paul is talking about, 
uh, he's not necessarily endorsing it. Like, look closely. He's not necessarily endorsing that. And I think, in fact, I think the rest of Scripture, including what Paul himself writes, would say, like, um, no, that's not how baptism works. That's not how resurrection works. So what I think Paul is doing here is this is probably a rhetorical argument. Remember, Paul's arguing with those who say there is no resurrection. And what he's doing is he's pointing out that their own practices contradict that position. It, it's sort of like an apologetics tactic. Like, let's, let's say you're talking to an atheist. And so you say, oh, so, so Mr. Atheist, do you think that Hitler was evil? And, you know, of course, the right answer to that is yes. So then you follow up with, well, but on what basis is there any standard of good and evil in your universe with, with no moral lawgiver? How can there be any such thing as good and evil? It's, and it, it's just sort of a, a rhetorical argument to highlight the inconsistency of someone's position. Because the, the reality is, is that even if you don't believe in Jesus, even if you don't believe that there's a resurrection, you live like you do. You live like there's meaning and purpose beyond your life. You live like your life matters. Otherwise, what are you doing? See, and, and so Paul is using just a rhetorical argument here to highlight an inconsistency, to, to, to make him grapple with, well, you might have dismissed this position, but look again, because the things that you do actually say I've, I've, are, are actually only logical if you believe what I believe. And so I think that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, why, why are you doing this baptism from the dead thing if you don't believe there's a resurrection? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So it's just a rhetorical argument, I think. But now, as we sort of come to, come to an end here, if we go to verse 20, now, now, now you can go to the next slide, Eric. <laughs> this, this paragraph, we're going to come back next week and dive into in detail, but let's just kind of end, end with this. Paul says this, in this question of, well, if the tomb isn't empty, then our faith is, is empty, our preaching is empty, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is alive. Praise the king, he is alive. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I mean, he's the first domino. He's the beginning of the end. He's, he's the end of the story come early and the end of the story is coming for us. He is, in fact, raised from the dead. And that's just like the exclamation mark. Jesus is alive. And so, if we fast forward to the end of the chapter, we get the last use of Paul's play on this word empty. And Eric, you can go to the next, the next slide. The very last verse, as he concludes this, he, he says this. After surveying the glorious truth of Jesus' resurrection and ours, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not empty. See, the tomb is empty, and so your work isn't. The tomb is empty, and so all of your labor and service and sacrifice and generosity and mission matters. 
It all matters. It's worth it in the end because we have a living hope. We have a savior who's alive. We have a confident future and hope to, future to look forward to. Jesus is alive. And so it's all worth it. It's not empty. So church, give yourself to the work of the Lord, whatever that means in your context. Whatever that means, whatever little daily sacrifices that means, as you're parenting your kids, as you're interacting with friends and classmates, as you're at work, as you're serving on a serve team here, whatever, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord because it's not empty. So church, we have this living hope. We have good news. So we're going to sing this great song, and I, I, I love it. We pulled it from just a couple weeks ago when we sang it as part of our Advent series. We're going to sing, sing it again, that church, we have a living hope. So I encourage you, wherever, wherever you're at, on your couch or whatever, stand up and let's sing and declare that Jesus is in fact raised.